You are listening to a production of WRCT Pittsburgh. Any opinions expressed within are solely those of the participants and do not reflect the views of WRCT Radio Incorporated. Questions and comments can be addressed to the Public Affairs Director at PA at WRCT.org or by calling 412-621-0728. Hey guys, Daniel here. It's February 6th and you're listening to I Wonder here on WRCT. Now, let me ask you guys something. Have you ever wondered about the ways that humans have purposefully changed the course of evolution in other organisms? Well, if you haven't, my co-host Ellis has. He asked about this to Richard Pell, who curates the Center for Post-Natural History in Pittsburgh. This museum displays organisms whose evolutionary history has been intentionally modified by humans for various reasons. So, Ellis? Daniel. Can you give us sort of a sneak peek at this post-natural concept? Like, what... What's an example of a post-natural organism? Sure, yeah. The most accessible one is something that everyone practically on Earth is familiar with being... Uh, A a a dog. Oh, okay. A dog. (laughs) Or a cat. A a domesticated animal of any kind. Interesting. Okay. Go on. So so think about a dog like a chihuahua. Okay. Chihuahuas did not exist as we know them as Taco Bell marketing... People know them uh, out in nature. They look like they do because people bred them to look that way. Huh. And that's probably been happening for hundreds, maybe, or even a thousand. I have no idea. It's been happening for a long period of time. And what fits into the idea of post-natural history about chihuahuas is that their genetic trajectory is being determined by human beings. So what you're saying is the Chihuahua today is not the same as what a Chihuahua was, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago because of humans. Well, yeah, exactly. It's not like it is that much time ago, not because they're evolving naturally, but because human beings are telling them how to breed and that is changing their DNA, basically. We want, we want a dog that fits in a purse, so we've made them smaller by modifying their evolutionary track. And they are thus a post-natural organism. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so you visited this museum, right? Correct. And so what was your first impression, your first reaction to the place? Honestly, other than, you know, it's on Penn Avenue, uh, kind of on the Garfield side. And other than walking in and thinking, you know, for a museum, comparing it against, you know, the Carnegie Art Museum or something, it's a little small. But it also is straight up, it is a museum, kind of in this sentence. And that might not sound that insightful, but, you know, it's coming from this art professor. I was not sure what to expect. I didn't really know what slant he might take on the idea of post-natural history. Um, But, you know, plain and simple, it's basically here is a subset of knowledge. It is being curated. Go look around. So you conducted this interview for a podcast uh, produced at Stanford. What was that called? It's called Generation Anthropocene. Okay. And so what's their deal? How does this interview fit with their theme? So it's a very cool project. And the reason that I did this basically stems from me hearing about them, listening to a few of their podcasts, and just sending an email saying, hey, I think you guys are really cool. I wish I could be your friend. (laughs) basically. Um, We all like more friends. Yeah, and so what their project is, uh, is they started this class last spring 
which um, was taught to undergrads. And these kind of graduate students led these students through this kind of journey of pod, making a podcast about this topic called the Anthropocene. We can get to that in one sec. Um, but they basically produced an interview, a long-form interview, with um, kind of the career scientists and career uh, historians and all these environmental thinkers at Stanford. Huh. Okay. So for those unfamiliar with the term, what exactly is the Anthropocene? The Anthropocene is the idea that we're living in a new era of geologic history. Uh, and, and this new era is characterized by a human influence. And so we have a ton of Earth-scale processes like our climate system and the hydrological cycle, blah, blah, blah. To even think about how the world works now, though, we have to consider humans. Huh. In, in terms of impacting these, like, really big Earth-scale processes. Like the genetic makeup of organisms. Say. Say. Interesting. So, okay, that's cool. I'm pretty psyched for this interview. So let's go ahead and get that rolling. Hold up. My name is Ellis Robinson, and today I'm joined by Rich Pell. He's the curator of the Center for Postnatural History in Pittsburgh. He's also an artist, a filmmaker, and assistant faculty in the School of Art at Carnegie Mellon. Rich Pell, thank you for being on the show, and welcome to Generation Anthropocene. Hey, Ellis. Thanks for having me. So first off, you're the curator for the Center of Postnatural History. What is postnatural history? Right. So th this is the first question we we always get. Um, postnatural history. There's a couple different ways you can slice it. What we're not describing, we're, we're not describing sort of a, a new epoch in history that has a hard line in the sand that's very clearly defined. Um, the the word itself is a bit paradoxical, and and that's intentional. We embrace that kind of mucky in between. But the way we define it begins with human beings intentional alterations of the natural world, the stuff we do on purpose. So if we kind of roll history backwards, that basically takes us back to when we first started to domesticate plants and animals respectively. And what that edge is, uh, when the, you know, the process of domestication, uh, is sort of when we first brought animals plants out of their habitat and into a habitat that we controlled uh, when we first started to take responsibility for both their habitat and their reproductive lives. And this, of course, has all sorts of consequences uh, leading to you know, virtually every vegetable that's in your garden, most pets that people have, uh, and, and lots of other things that we'll, I'm sure, get into over the course of this. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about dogs as much as we are about glowing fish? Absolutely. And that's that's really important to us uh, that we take a wider view and that we aren't just talking about, say, transgenics or genetic engineering, which has a, a history of about 35 years. This is a much larger cultural framework. And even, even the uh, genetically engineered organisms are built upon organisms that have been used in labs for hundreds of years before. And that history um, is kind of inseparable from, from the organisms. So as far as the museum itself goes, uh, I was walking through on Sunday, and I would describe it kind of as a natural history museum 
except the history is not natural. So I, I guess if you could just, when you walk into the museum, what do you see? Sure. Well, the, the first room you walk into is a rather well-lit room uh, that you enter in off of the street. It's kind of our simultaneously an office and kind of a welcome room. Uh, and then we have, a, we have a literal curtain that you pass through uh, and you enter into the darker uh, inner spaces. Uh, and I say darker, I mean literally like very low light level. And that's when things appear more as you would imagine in uh, an older natural history museum, hardwood, uh, spotlighting. And that points to the other origin of the word post-natural, which is as it relates to uh, natural history. We're talking about post-natural history. In a sense, we are defining ourselves by where the institutions of natural history museums leave off. It's sort of in their mandate to document the entirety of the natural world. They try to collect several of every living thing if they can. However, they start to ignore living things at a certain point uh, in their kind of evolutionary history. And that point tends to be right where the organisms start to show signs of humans having, having adapted them. Huh. Uh, as soon as organisms get domesticated, scientists, and typically in natural history museums, tend to uh, start to ignore them. You know, essentially they're interested in ecology. They're interested in what the organisms uh, can tell us about how life in the world functions. And when an organism is raised in captivity, it doesn't tell them about the outside natural world. It starts to tell them about more about culture, about us. And that kind of falls off their radar of interest. So right at that moment is kind of where we, we pick up. So I was wondering, my perception of natural history museums is that the intellectual fuel comes from ecologists, paleobiologists, archaeologists, and they study those things partly probably because of their training and partly because of interest. Once this idea of natural or of post-natural history museums spreads like wildfire and you're setting up these things all over the world, who are those analogous people? Who are the ecologists and the archaeologists in a post-natural history museum? This is this is part of the problem. There aren't a lot of people that are taking that on as their role. Uh, the, the participants in these areas tend to be the scientists and engineers producing genetically engineered organisms. Uh, however, their attention is generally really, really focused on not even just on a single species that they're working with, but oftentimes a, a handful of genes within that species. A single protein. A single protein, absolutely. So people that are really paying attention to the, uh, the wider playing field, it sort of almost by default falls to people in the humanities and the arts who, who sort of take that as kind of their, their mandate. Yeah, so I mean, you, you need to know some biology, but you also, it's philosophers and sociologists and artists because post-natural implies culture, right? Yeah, completely intertwined. Uh, and and I, I should point out that historically, this is not just about scientists and biologists and engineers. Uh, this is about uh, farmers. This is about families at home. This is about all the myriad changes we've made to the living world based on stuff we like, based on our desires. You know, when we breed uh, songbirds uh, in certain ways uh, for their color or for their ability to learn new songs or male chickens, cocks that uh, fight uh, and we, we breed them for blood sport. People do that with dogs. People bring all sorts of different values into this process and have for thousands of years. Uh, and it's it's a remarkable piece of history. It's fraught with all the problems and contradictions um, that, that human history contains. 
but it's kind of a, a viewpoint that doesn't often get represented. Um, and for that reason, it's a really exciting area of study. I was about to ask, what drew you to post-natural history as an idea to study? Well, I sort of started, there, there actually was a moment, there was an aha moment. Uh, I had been uh, involved with kind of between engineering and the arts for quite a long time, uh, robotics and, you know, using kind of internet communications. And I was really actively ignoring biology. Like, I thought it was really cool. But it seemed like that that would be another lifetime, um, I, you know, to understand what's going on over there with genetic engineering and all that stuff. Uh, and I was literally, I was at my 10th high school reunion, uh, and I ran into a guy that was, you know, we were both in high school. We were sort of the computer hackers. So I wanted to tell him about the projects that I'd been doing with robots. I thought he would think that's cool. And he did. He, he nodded. And he said, yeah, that's really cool, Rich. Um, I also make robots, except mine are alive, and I program them with DNA. And I went, ooh, I lost Nice. Lost that one, um, but he was he was in a in a great position in an emerging field where he could kind of wave me in, and he started to invite me to uh, conferences on uh, synthetic biology. This is in around two thousand four or five, and I just kind of went into a feeding frenzy uh, learning about this field. Uh, one of the reasons being. Here I am at this conference. There's scientists from all sorts of different disciplines to the point where it was not weird for me to be there because nobody was an insider at that point. Mm. And they were all talking about politics, which is really weird. Scientists don't do that. But they really kind of felt that they were kind of under assault from both the religious right and the homeland security right, as well as the you know anti-GMO activists on the left. And I thought, you know, wow, there's there's this really intense conversation that has no center. There is no place where you go to to learn about this stuff. Uh, and the more I thought about what seemed to be kind of a cultural blind spot, uh, the more it needed to be filled. And the more I looked into it, the more complicated it got. How are the other natural history museums reacting? I mean, what do they say about this idea? But yeah. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I had the amazing experience of being chosen as a, uh, a fellow at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. And they gave me... I had full access for 60 days, and I had a little office space. I stretched those 60 days out to almost a year because I, I asked them if they had to be like contiguous, and they're like, "Oh, I guess not." So I just, I just smeared it across a year. But I, I ended up having my office space in uh, in rodents. So I was, uh, I was sort of working under the guy who was a head of vertebrates, so I had easy access to any vertebrate. But my office was in rodents, and at first I really didn't. I didn't know why. That was just sort of where I had ended up. That was fine. But then we started looking through the collection. They've got something like 50,000 rodents in their collection. And one of the first cases she opened up was uh, Rattus norvegicus, which is the population of rats that our laboratory rats are based on. Uh, and she opens up this cabinet, and there are all these you know, brown rats, and then there's this little this cluster of white ones. And I was like, okay, who are these guys here? You know, And I pull out the drawer, and... The, the little label on them uh, attributes them to originating in a naval lab in 1944. Uh, okay, really interesting. That's kind of World War II. That's during the Manhattan Project. That's when many of these organisms were first being used as uh, sort of surrogates for human study of the effects of radiation. She opens up another cabinet, and I'm looking down this list of countries where all these specimens originate from. And it's, you know, I see Vietnam, Korea, Iraq. You know, it was, it was sort of this list of countries that we'd been at war with. Uh, and at that point, I realized, wow, this, this collection is, 
kind of embedded within this natural collection is also just a history of the United States of America. The, the movements of our military are kind of recorded in this collection. And that's, that's when I really started to, to dig into these kind of unexplored parts of the Smithsonian collection that they didn't even really know were there because it, it doesn't answer the kinds of questions that they're interested in. Uh, laboratory rats from the Navy don't answer questions about uh, the evolution of those rats and their, their movements and where their original habitat may have been and the effects of climate change and all those kinds of questions. Interesting. How about people that just come in? How, yeah. What reactions are you getting from um, just your visitors? Sure. Uh, uh, a variety. I mean, what's, what's interesting is some people come in and they want to know right away, are, you know, is, are we pro this? Is, is this a pro museum or an anti museum? I'm just like, it, it's, it's a museum, you know, this is, this is, it's not a, you know, a propaganda machine. Uh, you know, we're here for you to consider this stuff and people, they go into the exhibits, they come out. Uh, I've seen people afterwards who say, you know, I, I came in here thinking that you were, you guys were all against this stuff, but you know, I can now see that you're for it. And we've had people that have come in saying, like, I thought you guys were really in favor of this stuff. And I can really see that, you know, you're, you're rather critical of it now. It's very, very important to us that people arrive at their own conclusions and a conclusion that they can really call their own, uh, that they're not trying to decide whether or not they agree with a position, but that they're really having what oftentimes is the uncomfortable feeling of having to come up with their own response to it. It's not always pleasant. But we go out of our way to use language that doesn't originate in academia, doesn't originate in activism, uh, and doesn't come from the industry. And that's it's really hard to do. It doesn't leave you with a whole lot left. But we just kind of rely on uh, essentially storytelling. And we, we want people to basically have the opportunity to think about this stuff in a new way just for a moment and arrive at their own sensibility about it. So a lot of time in the past, geologic boundaries have been placed based on the fossil record. And so with all your work on post-natural organisms, is there one or a few that stand out that would be most indicative in the fossil record sense of the Anthropocene? So when we look at bones of domesticated animals, where you really see the effects of human intervention most clearly, I think, is in dogs. Dogs are absolutely remarkable. They're different from wolves, their wild ancestors, in so many ways in their behavior and their response to people that, you know, in, in ways that are born into them, that, that if you try to train a wolf cub, it will not develop these traits. Um, it's something that has been bred into them and probably them into us as well. Uh, it goes both ways. Uh, but if you're just looking at the bones, one of the first things you notice is the size discrepancy between different breeds of dog. The difference between the largest dog and the smallest dog is, is a larger difference in scale than within any other single species on the planet. So that's where it's most clear. We have an exhibit now in Amsterdam where we have a, a Great Dane skull and a little Chihuahua skull. And that's, that's basically what it's about is just appreciating the wild morphological uh, differences that humans have built into these animals. Given all that we've been talking about, where would you place the Anthropocene, the boundary of it? The boundary of it. Well, as I mentioned with post-natural, we start with intention. We had to draw the line somewhere. Uh, and so we drew it there. Uh, we don't include things that humans do by accident. So we're, we're not interested in the 
three-eyed fish that grow outside the nuclear plant? That's kind of the one question in this series of interviews that everyone gets asked. The most interesting one to me is the fact that you can start to say that we are not mere spectators of nature and that nature is now and will become even more so a cultural phenomenon. As soon as post-natural organisms get out into the world and, oh, that's nature. Oh, wait, it's not because it's that's a post-natural organism. And just the fact that like we are creating and participating in nature, to me, that's the interesting boundary when, when that started. And that I mean, it's a lot of what you're talking about. Absolutely. And this is where it gets really paradoxical. I mean, I'm sure there's uh, some number of people out there listening that are jumping up and down and saying, you know, humans are nature. They're a part of nature. It's all nature. And that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, we, we don't, we don't ever step outside of it. And this is not to say that there was some idyllic nature that preceded humans that we're then subsequently mucking up, but there is, uh, at least with post-natural, uh, I am taking an anthropocentric view, probably because I am one, you know, and that's where intention comes into play. It's what do me and my people do <laughs> um, to, to change this stuff? So, you know, if, if there is a criticism, yes, it's a very anthropocentric view, <laughs> and that is fine. Rich Pelt, thank you so much <laughs> for talking with us today. It's Thanks. It's great. Thanks for having me. Pretty interesting stuff. So I guess if you've ever thought that the concept of genetic engineering was weird, we now have an updated perspective. It's really all around us in these post-natural organisms. Organisms like your pet dog or cat. To learn more about post-natural history, you can visit the Center for Post-Natural History at 4913 Penn Avenue. A big thanks goes out to Richard Pell for participating in the interview and Mike Osborne of the Generation Anthropocene Project. They're doing some really, really cool stuff over there. You can check out their work on their website or on iTunes. You can also check out past episodes of I Wonder on iTunes or our website at iwonderpgh.org. There's also information on there on how to phone in your own I Wonder question. Hey, maybe we'll make an episode about it. For WRCT Pittsburgh and the American Student Radio Network, I'm Daniel Tachik. Take care. 